0: What a wonderful service we have had thus far in singing praise to God and talking to Him in prayer. I appreciate all the brethren who have been leading in our singing and leading us in marvelous prayers each evening. I appreciate the fact that you're here tonight, that we're all able to be here together. It is one of those winters. We wonder which one it is. All I could say today was it's a cold one. It's just really cool for this time of year, but the enthusiasm and the spirit of you folks has been very, very warm, and we appreciate that. Your friendliness is contagious. Your enthusiasm is too. It's evident that the church here at Pippin is alive and well, is working and thriving, inviting folks to come to the meeting, and uh, it's very nice to be in your acquaintance for this effort. We've enjoyed the good meals, and uh, we enjoyed the hospitality of the Dyers tonight and some good fellowship there as well as good food. I've had a little bit of a stomach disorder the last couple of days, and I was just pretty well uh, eating a little soup and drinking a little water until tonight... And I ate a pretty good supper, and my stomach said, what's that? I think I like it. And anyway, I really enjoyed the meal, and I appreciate that as well as all the other meals that have been served, and your hospitality is very, very gracious. There are so many again tonight that I have known for many years who are here Uh, Several gospel preachers were here last night and again tonight, men that I have respected and admired for a long, long time. These people are very near and dear to my heart, but not only are those preachers, are those people near and dear to me, there's just a lot of you that I've known for many, many years. And I'm honored that you're here tonight and that we have the opportunity to study together from God's Word for a little while this evening. I would echo what Randy said, and if you do not have a regular place of worship tomorrow night, uh, we'd love to have you. If you do, I'll write you a note, and you can take it back home and give you an excuse. No, I wouldn't do that, but uh, we would be delighted to have you if you can come tomorrow night. We would be honored by your presence. The question of the ages: what must I do to be saved? That is indeed the question of the ages. It was Brother N. B. Hardiman from whom I first read a beautiful analogy of that particular question. He made the observation that the question begins with the word what, denoting that there is something that must be done. What speaks of something? And then he would say must. The word must is an imperative I was preaching several years ago in a gospel meeting, and I did not know it. I would have been somewhat intimidated had I known it. But there was a Greek scholar in the audience, and I mentioned that word, word must and talked about it a little bit. He came to me later, and he said, Brother Anderson, wherever that word appears in the Greek, it is a, an imperative. It is something that must absolutely be done. And so you were right on the money when talking about that. What must, not what ought, what could, what should, but what must I do to be saved? What must I personally, me as an individual, what must I do to be saved? Not what must my parents, my children, my grandparents, or anybody else. It's what must I do to be saved? What must I do? Not get, not feel, but what must I do? There is something to do. What must I do to be? That's an infinitive, which implies that there is someone to whom I must look. Something beyond myself must be sought in order for me to learn what must I do to be. I'm the one who needs to be saved. There is yet someone else to whom I must look for that salvation. What must I do to be saved, delivered from sin in this case? What must I do to be saved? There has never been a question as important as that one. And there's a lot of important questions posed in the Bible. What must I do to be saved? I want you to think about that tonight as I discuss with you a lesson entitled, Things Necessary to Salvation. Some who are here tonight uh, are from Carthage, and they know that I've been preaching some, ser- uh, some ser- uh, sermons in a series this year uh, around the theme of things. The word thing or things appears something like 1,100 times in the Bible. And I began thinking about that. We talk about things all the time. Seek you first the kingdom of God and, and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And you turn to various other passages, and that word, things, appears. For example, in Luke 12. Uh, you know, you're going to die tonight. Then who shall these Things be. Those are material possessions that we've brought together. Oh, there are so many passages that deal with things. What must I do to be saved? It implies that there are some things to do that are absolutely necessary to being saved from sin. Well, what are those things? We've often talked about five facts. We remind people quite often that in order to be saved, you must hear the gospel of Christ. Inasmuch as the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, it stands to reason that that gospel must be heard. By its very nature, the gospel begs for an audience. It's the message of salvation, after all. So men should desire to hear it. The woman at the well wanted Jesus to tell her more. Nicodemus wanted to know more. And we should want to know more today. The gospel should be the sweetest words that ever fall upon our ears. We should love it with all of our hearts and desire it above everything else. God's Word is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. It is indeed something to be desired. We've often mentioned that passage. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The production of faith is therefore dependent upon the preaching of the gospel. For faith to be produced, without which it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 says, the gospel must be preached and presented to people who are interested in hearing it. So we tell people you need to hear the gospel. You go to the book of Acts, study all the cases of conversion... And in every single example, prior to the person being converted, the preaching of the gospel takes place. Preaching is absolutely necessary. You can't replace it with drama. You can't replace it with choreography. You can't replace it with anything. The preaching of the gospel is central to the plan of salvation. How can I, except some man guide me? The eunuch asked of Philip, when Philip had inquired if he understood what he was reading. So preaching fits into God's pattern. Probably as far back as Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. And from that time onward, preaching occupied a very important role. Our Savior was a preacher. The one who announced His coming was a preacher. Those who followed Him were preachers, spreading the gospel of Christ all over the world. Preaching is very important. Preach the Word, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. So it's very important that the gospel be preached so that people may hear, and hearing they might believe. There's the second fact. The gospel is designed to produce faith, as we've already stated. Those who give it an honest hearing will indeed have faith produced. When the Philippian jailer inquired, What must I do to be saved? He was told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. As some religionists today say, see there, there it is. That's all you have to do. But uh, that's not the end of the story. One preacher said, read the next verse. When they read the next, read the next verse. And he kept them reading until the fellow got down to where the gospel was preached to that jailer. You see, how else could he have believed on Jesus, the Son of God, separate and apart from hearing the gospel of Christ? He would have been an, an exception to the rule. If he were saved at the very moment those words were uttered to him. As much as I mentioned the other night, when Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Many people assume well, those people's sins were forgiven right there. No. Those same people inquired on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what (laughs) shall we do? They had been convicted of murdering the Son of God. And when they wanted to know what to do to be saved, Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. If they had been forgiven at the cross, they would have had no sins to have been remitted. Jesus' prayer was answered but it was answered some 50 days later on Pentecost. Sometimes we miss that point. His forgiving attitude, His forgiving spirit, His desire for them to be saved is evident. But the question is, when was their sins forgiven? Same thing is, ref- and true, is true in reference to the Philippian jailer. When the man heard about Jesus and came to have faith in Him, He was then in a position to be baptized into Christ, which he was, the same hour of the night. I mentioned Brother Hardiman earlier. I've always appreciated his writings. I never did get to hear him speak in person, but I've read the tabernacle sermons and some of his debates and so on. And it was Brother Hardiman who made the point that in the study of the book of Acts, you'll never find an example of conversion where an individual is said to have ever eaten or slept prior to being baptized after he learned the truth. When he learned the truth, he was baptized immediately. People on the day of Pentecost, nothing is said about their eating or sleeping until they were baptized. You see, many people today say, Oh, baptism isn't important. Not significant. Just put it off, delay it. Don't even do it in any way because it's just not that important. But there was a sense of urgency. The eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? Philip told him that if he believed, he could. You see, that faith was absolutely necessary. Can't please God without it. But faith alone will not save you. Then we talk to people about the importance of repentance. Repentance may be one of the most difficult things we're asked to do. It's a very crucial and critical part of the plan of salvation because it involves a change of mind, of heart, that leads to a change of life. It's not something that you just go through the motions, people's hearts must be broken. There must be that broken and contrite spirit. Sorry not that you've been caught in sin, but that you have broken the heart of God by your sins. That we have shown contempt toward Him and to His matchless name. One who has loved us so much, we have not returned that love as we should. We have lived a life that has brought reproach upon Him. You see, that's repentance. To have another mind is the meaning of the literal word, the Greek word that is translated repentance. That man who had the two sons, he told them to go work that day in his vineyard. And one of them said, "Uh, I'll go. But he didn't. The other one said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. He repented and went, changed his mind, and that resulted in a reformation of life. We know that Peter told the people on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Repentance is necessary for the remission of our sins. Repent you therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Peter would say one chapter later, Acts 3 verse 19. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. You see, it's a universal command. It's something that all men must do, for all men have sinned, Romans 3, verse 23. And then Paul wrote in Romans 10, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You remember when the uh, the eunuch said to Philip, What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe, you may. And then the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. There is that great, marvelous confession of Jesus as the Son of God. If we deny Him... And do not confess Him. He will not confess us in that great day. It behooves us therefore to acknowledge Him as both Lord and Christ. Whatever we do is to be done in the name of the Lord. By His authority. When we recognize His Lordship, then we understand that it's not enough to call Him Lord. Why call you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Luke 6:46. 46. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. When the eunuch made that confession, we are told that both he and Philip went down into the water, and there he was baptized by Philip. They came up out of the water. Uh, Philip was caught away. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. The people on Pentecost were told to repent and be baptized. In keeping with what Jesus had taught in Mark 16, when He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth and is baptized. You've heard before the the coordinating conjunction connects things of equal value. Belief and baptism are connected by it. That is a complex declarative sentence I've been told. I'm not a really great grammarian, but I remember diagramming sentences and things like that, oftentimes much to my chagrin, because that was a difficult thing for me. But at any rate, someone has said that that verse tells us that there is a he that shall be saved. Really, the basic sentence is, He shall be saved. Now, we've got to determine from what is said, who the He is that shall be saved. Is it the He who believes shall be saved? No. Is it the He who is baptized shall be saved? No. Who is the He that shall be saved? He who believes and is baptized. The he who does both those things is the he who shall be saved in that passage. So that passage establishes the fact that belief and baptism are absolutely essential. Older preachers, I guess Morgan Medlin was among them, that would go to the blackboard and write 2 plus 2 equals 4. And right under it would put B plus B equals salvation. Salvation. S, belief plus baptism equals salvation. Friends, that's easily understood. It's as simple as 2 plus 2. No one denies 2 plus 2 equals 4. You take 2 minus 2 and what do you have? Zero. You take belief minus baptism, what do you have? You don't have salvation because faith alone will not save you. Man is not saved by faith alone. Remember what James said? James chapter 2? Will not save you. Now those are five facts. But friends, that's only part of the story. Sometimes we talk to people about those five facts and then we stop there. We go no further. We fail to remind people that there are things that are involved in those matters that are vitally important. I want to talk to you briefly in our time remaining about five required changes. Five changes that have to occur in the process of conversion in order for it to be valid. And I believe that these are vitally important. You see, in the hearing of the gospel, there is a change that is wrought. Ignorance... Is changed into knowledge. That is vitally important. Remember those passages wherein the Apostle Paul reminds us that ignorance alienates one from God? There are people who are described as being in a state of ignorance. That is, they've just ignored certain things. Maybe it's because they've never had the opportunity to know them or hear them. Someone said that we're all ignorant. We're just ignorant about different things. There's a lot of things in the mechanical field that I really wish I could do. I have a brother who's always had abilities to work with his hands. In fact, he learned it growing up. He tore our bicycle apart just to be able to get to put it back together. To see how the thing worked. It was working perfectly fine, I'd say there's nothing wrong with that. We can still ride it. He'd turn that thing over on the seat, you know, and, and the handlebars, and, and he had adjust those wheels, he had fine tune it, and I didn't see anything wrong with it. He can do just about anything he wants to mechanically if he has the time. At any rate, I'd like to do that. But I'm ignorant about those things. I mean, I can change oil in a car, and that's about it. But he can do just about anything when he wants to and has the time. But in the preaching of the gospel, there is the replacing of ignorance by knowledge. We come to know the truth. God's Word is truth. John 17, 17. So when the truth is preached, our ignorance of God and His will is replaced by a knowledge of God and That's what's involved in hearing the gospel of Christ. We learn that we're sinners, that we need to be saved. We have been ignorant of that perhaps at the first. But now we know the gospel reveals that to us. Think also about the matter of faith. Unbelief is replaced by trust. Those who have been unbelievers heretofore now believe in God. They believe what his word teaches. They come to know and to understand that the way of man is not in himself, and that they must look to God for leadership and instruction. How desperately people need to understand that today. I'm not sure we'll ever convince our largely skeptical world that there is truly a God. And it may never be until we all stand before Him in that great day of judgment that we will become the believers that we ought to. But friends, we must continue to preach and teach God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The third thing that we talked about was repentance. You see, in the conversion process, pride is replaced by penitence. A man must humble himself and be willing to yield to the will of God. He must renounce his stubborn pride and recognize I'm a sinner and I am lost without God. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that without God, we are without hope. We simply have no hope separate and apart from Him. Repentance, you see, is the breaking of the spirit, the breaking of the heart that leads one to realize His absolute dependence upon God. And he's so sorry that he has sinned and lived a life that has broken the heart of his Maker. That's what's involved in penitence. And then there's the matter of confession. You see, before there has been rejection, denial. You know, I don't need God, I don't need His Son. But in confession, there is the acknowledgement to the world and to all who will listen. I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You not only acknowledge the Son, you acknowledge God in that confession. Because He is the Son of God. So you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And you acknowledge God, His existence, His presence. We must believe not only that He is, but that He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. Again, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And then in baptism, when one is baptized into Christ, that is the greatest demonstration of submission that we can imagine really. What occurs here is that disobedience, a stubborn, obstinate spirit, is replaced by a spirit of obedience. One obeys from the heart the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul said in Romans 6. There are so many people, especially down in our area, Someone told me this not long ago that a preacher said that why all they believe over there at the Church of Christ is that you just walk down the aisle, shake hands with the preacher, and get baptized, and boy, you've got a ticket to heaven. And I said, well, we'll just chalk that up to a lack of knowledge. There's nothing further from the truth. You see, people sometimes do not grasp all of the changes that must be wrought. And really each act or fact as we have described them tonight has a a connection to the change that must be wrought and correspond to what is going on in that particular part of the plan of salvation. Can a disobedient individual please God? Certainly not. You remember that Samuel told King Saul in the long ago to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. He went on to tell him that his disobedience to God's command to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and to for one to disobey God in such a flagrant way, was just as bad as witchcraft and idolatry. Now that's putting it in pretty serious company, isn't it? The Bible still says that Jesus became the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey Him. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Those who obey not the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. That is, they'll be put out of His presence forevermore. That's a serious thing to think about. I would to God that all of us would comprehend the significance of that statement. There would be multiplied numbers of people that would respond to the gospel to be baptized into Christ. And there would be many others who would be restored And there would be a change wrought in the life of every single one of us who is a Christian that we would seek to draw nearer to the Lord every day as James encourages us to do. It's a serious matter to contemplate being forever and ever separated from the presence of God. No light, no hope, no happiness, no joy, no peace. All of those things would be and will be conspicuously absent. I want you to think with me briefly about five men. Five facts, five changes, five men. Are you aware of the fact that in the process of conversion, the dead man must be brought to life? You who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. You've been quickened in Christ. The word quickened means made alive. When a person lives in sin, he is dead spiritually. It is only when he comes into Christ that he is alive spiritually. Outside Christ? He is without hope. The sinful man must be forgiven. As long as a man is living in sin and has his sins hanging over him, he stands condemned. He needs to be forgiven. Oh, do you remember? Maybe you never went through this, but I did. I was quite a mischievous little fellow and have been thought to be a little mischievous in my older age even at times. But at any rate, I remember getting into things, and then finally learning that I was not nearly as clever as I thought I was, and that after all, Dad and Mom knew about it. In fact, the only time that I ever got a paddling at school, the story of it beat me home. And Dad and Mom knew about it already. Before I ever saw them. At any rate. I'm sure that we all remember at one time or the other. Doing something that we shouldn't have done. And then facing up to it. Receiving the punishment. And our parents telling us. Now you have done this thing that you shouldn't have done. You've been punished. If you've learned your lesson. We forgive you. Ah. The relief, when finally you realized, man, they're not going to kill me. They have forgiven me. There is nothing quite to compare to that relief, is there? The people on the day of Pentecost said, we're guilty. We know we're guilty. We are guilty as charged. Now, the question is, what do we need to do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. Do you not imagine that these people were relieved to find out that there was a way that they could be forgiven? And that the atoning blood of Jesus Christ could take care of even their sins? The ones who had killed the Son of God? Oh, you know they did. Don't you know that that's one of the reasons, as you read a little bit later in Acts 2, about how filled with joy these people were? They rejoiced. They were a happy people because they were a forgiven people. And because of that, they sought to do good and to live for God from that point onward. You see, that sinful man must be forgiven. Uh, That brings us to realize that the guilty man needs to be pardoned. I'm sure some of you have probably heard the story of the events that transpired during the term of Andrew Jackson, I believe it was. I believe he was the president at the time. Two men robbed, uh, I believe, a train or a stagecoach. They were apprehended and sentenced to death by hanging. And some, uh, there were events that transpired. I can't remember all the details, but at any rate, They were given a pardon by the President. One of the man's man's names was Wilson. And Mr. Wilson said, I reject the pardon. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court ruled that indeed... A pardon was something that could be extended but could not be forced upon anyone, and that the person to whom it was extended had the legal right to reject that pardon, which he did. Can you imagine that? If I were awaiting death by hanging, I doubt seriously if I would reject a pardon from the President of the United States. Every single one of us is sentenced to death. And yet multiplied millions are rejecting the pardon that has been extended. God can't force it on us. Oh, He invites us to come, doesn't He? Jesus' invitation, Matthew 11, 28 through 30 the invitation with which the Bible closes, Revelation 22, verse 17, Spirit and the bride say, Come. But you see, the guilty man, the fact that a pardon has been extended implies that the guilty man needs to be pardoned. Else there's no hope for him. He's sure to die. The wages of sin is death, and inasmuch as we have all sinned, We have all been sentenced to death. I'm always touched and moved by the story of David. This man was a good man, but he made a grievous, well, not a grievous mistake. He made grievous mistakes, plural. Finally, when Nathan came to him and told him, Thou art the man. David knew beyond any shadow of a doubt what the law demanded. An adulterer was to be put to death, even if he was a king. But God intervened and granted mercy to him because evidently of his extreme penitence. I believe it's in the book of Romans where Paul uses that example to sort of remind his Jewish brethren... Before you refuse salvation to the Gentiles, you need to remember that the mercy of God was extended to one of your own who deserved to die. And he refers to David. You see, God has given the pardon, He's extended the pardon. But He's not going to force us. He cannot legally and rightfully force it upon us. Why? Because that would destroy the concept of it being a pardon. It's something that can be extended but must be received. In conversion, the filthy man is washed. Remember, Paul says, Such were some of you, talking to the Corinthians about the deplorable sins that characterized them prior to their conversion? But you have been washed, you have been sanctified, and so on. Was not Saul of Tarsus told, Arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins? Calling on the name of the Lord. Peter says that sin is filthy. He likens it to the sow that has been washed, returning to wallow in the mire. I'm a farm boy. I've seen that. I know exactly what he's talking about. I've seen the other figure that he uses that's somewhat repulsive. The dog turning to devour his own vomit again. That is the repulsive nature of sin, folks. And yet sometimes we lap it up and seem to thrive on it and enjoy it, never once aware of the fact that it is full of deadly poison. It will condemn our souls. In an old Bible that I carried for many, many years, in fact, I thought that I had misplaced it, but I found it not long ago in the old office at Carthage. And sure enough, there on the flyleaf was a note that I had written, heard from someone else. And it says that sin will keep me from this book. This book will keep me from sin. Sin is the only thing that will keep you out of heaven. If it isn't pardoned, if it isn't forgiven... Then it indeed will keep you out of heaven. One final man, the old man must be put to death, and the new man must be put on. Paul uses that analogy several times. Put off that old man of sin. He said, Those who are in Christ are new creatures, not old creatures. But in Ephesians 4 especially, he talks about putting away that old man. All of those old characteristics and traits, just put him off and put on the new man. You see, there are five facts upon which we must act. There are five changes to be wrought. There are five men that must die. And there are five other men that must replace them. Friends, that is a summation of the plan of salvation that I hope you'll remember. It is not merely going through a series of acts. Each thing that God commands us to do is designed for a specific purpose to accomplish a particular change that is absolutely necessary in order for us to be His child. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. But inside Christ, all spiritual blessings abound. Will you not come to Him tonight in simple trusting faith, turn from a life of sin to be baptized into Him, that you might enjoy those blessings? If you're an erring child of God and have gone back into the ways of the world, surely you could be inspired to rethink your position and lot in life and realize that something, or that God has something much, much better for you than what you're presently enjoying. Just read the story of the prodigal son. There was something much better awaiting that boy when he got home. Same thing is true in reference to all of us tonight. If you're here in subject, we bid you come as we stand and sing.